All right, every week we turn our attention to the preaching of the Word. It takes 15 seconds to get the head mic clicked and working without reverb. You want to talk to this a little bit more? Testing, one, two, three. All right, we're good? You are listening, but you are not passive. You are giving your attention to the words of Scripture, and I'm getting to love you and serve you by trying to make the words that were just read to you make sense to your head, fill up your heart, and then move out of your hands. Uh, here's the big idea that when you leave today, I hope that you have it in you. I am dead without you, and you are dead without me. I am dead without you, and you are dead without me. Hopefully the words of Scripture have this simple phrase ringing in your heart when you leave this morning. All right, let me start here with this. We have three basic environments in which we make disciples in the life of our church. One is right now, Sunday morning. If you want to give it the fancy name, you can call it the Lord's Day. Once a week, every week, all year long, all life long, we pause what we're doing to rest to trust God together, to be a family under the word and at the table. You are singing and responding. Someone is preaching. The band is leading us. We're in this building. Our kids are downstairs. We are discipled through this time week after week. Wouldn't miss it for anything. The second rhythm or space that we have we call tracks. These are one-year-long discipleship communities where Seven Milers opt in to be trained and equipped around a specific content area or calling so that they might serve Jesus well in their homes or in the church or in the world. So this year we have two tracks happening. One is for young men in the life of the church to get their head wrapped around what is Jesus calling me to as a man, worker, husband, father, the other track is for women in our church who are saying, I want to be who Jesus called me to be, and I want to help partner with our church in making disciples. How do I do that? One year long, you meet once a month, it has a beginning and an end, and the Spirit does beautiful work in there. Then we have something called gospel communities. These are, without a doubt, the messiest and the hardest thing that we do. Here's how we say it. Gospel communities are messy and hard and indispensable. Gospel communities are messy and hard and indispensable. A gospel community is a smaller group of seven milers who share life together all year long with a totally different kind of timetable and no end date on that relationship. Here's why they're so hard and they're so messy. Logistics. You got to meet in people's houses or you got to find a restaurant or a coffee shop that everybody wants to be at, but it's not as easy as meeting at the space. Child care. That's not provided for you. You got to figure that thing out. Um, scheduling is messy. It's not as easy as just once a month or, hey, Sunday mornings, I block that out. 
you got to figure out how can we see each other with enough frequency for this to be useful. I think sometimes it is easier to like solve a Rubik's Cube or split the atom or make sense of a Boston Globe editorial than it is to figure out how do we schedule gospel community life together. And gospel community is life lived like this, and we all know that the closer that you get to people, the more intimately that you know each other, the sharper those edges are. And so I get it when someone says to me, why would I want to give myself to being a part of a gospel community? Today's text, I hope, answers the question for you on why we would say these are indispensable, even though they're messy and they're hard. All right, we're preaching through the biblical book of Hebrews. We're calling the sermon series, Jesus Seriously. Remember the two reasons that we're doing that. One is because the idea of believing in Jesus or following Jesus is a joke in our Bostonian culture in a post-Christian city like Melrose. How many times have you talked about your faith in Jesus and just had friends kind of roll their eyes like, seriously, did you just say Jesus? I've had that a lot, and the point of this sermon series is to say, no, seriously, the glory of Christ is unrivaled, unsurpassed, unmatched, incomparable. There's no one like him. There's a reason he stands at the center of history. Seriously, Jesus. But there's a second reason we're calling our look at the book of Hebrews, Jesus, seriously. And that is because this letter is very, very serious. It is not a happy-go-lucky letter. And five or six different times, he drops sober warnings on the readers. We introduced you to that a few weeks ago when we did the first one, and we said this. When you come against these warnings, they are meant to drive us not to question our security in Christ, but to drive us to strengthen our grip on Christ. Grip is the big analogy that we use here. There is a sense in which if you have believed the gospel, if your heart has come alive to the glories of Christ, Jesus has you in his grip and he is never letting go. You are secure. He said himself, all that the Father put in my hand, I will not lose one of them. We are secure because our salvation does not rely on us. It relies on Jesus and he is reliable. But that security does not foster pretense in our souls. We then, having been gripped by Christ, grip him back as tightly as we can. We don't presume. We say, Jesus has gripped me, and my response is to grip him all the way down. The warnings in the book escalate. They get more intense as we go. We've walked you through the first one. It was, don't fade. In other words, there's a tendency to just kind of like slide to the side. It was the most gentle warning, and it said, hey, don't fade. The second warning is more intense. You're going to hear it in a second. Don't let your hearts get hard. You, you, you don't just fade from Jesus. You will allow your heart to grow hard. So we're hearing more intensity here. All right, I'm going to put the words up on the screen. 
and we'll look at them together. So here's the first verse that Allison read. She said, take care, brothers. And then there was two things to take care of. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God and take care lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All right, let's work some of these words together. First of all, that take care there is much sharper than it sounds. So I got this buddy, Jason, who's a salesman, and he's good at it. So he's learned how to say things that make you just want to like be friends with him, get a beer with him, go to a game with him, like him. He's got that skill as a salesman. Whenever he says goodbye to me, you know what he says? He says, all right, Maddie, take care. And I just feel all so warm, and I feel like nothing is going to stop me in life. I'm going to take care. It's like this warm, warm benediction to our conversation together. That is not these words in Scripture. These are words of watch out or look out or hey, 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 hey. It has that urgency. Callie is nine, and I took her to her first ever Red Sox game this year, and we got there as soon as the doors opened so I could show her the whole joint from Way Park, right? First time through. So we were walking in a circle during batting practice, and we kind of snuck behind the guy at the green monster seats who's not supposed to really let you in. So we kind of snuck behind him so we could see that view. And Callie is standing on the railing watching, amazed at, at this view of Fenway Park, And there's a 12-year-old girl over here, and it must have been her first time because she was like daydreaming too. And I don't know who was up on the devil rays, but he hit a rocket. And that thing started climbing directly toward the green monster seats. And I noticed that this girl was not paying any attention. And then you know like that moment when a kid starts to fall down the stairs and you're, oh no, I can't get them and this is going to go bad? And I watched the ball sail and I was like, that's kind of coming this way. Oh, shoot, that's coming 10 feet to the right of me. Oh, shoot, that girl is standing right there and she's not looking. And some fraction of a second before it, very useful, I went like this. That was it. She didn't know if I was, you know, sick or having a heart attack, so she looked at me and this bomb flew within eight inches of her ear and ricocheted off of it, and then she just looked at it like, oh, what was that? Like, you have no idea how close you just came to going to the hospital. Do you feel what happened in my heart right there with the, that's the heart of the writer. Hey, 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 watch out, look out, pay attention. That's these words. Then he says, take care, brothers. So I need you to feel that this is not written to unbelievers or outsiders or just like, you know, our friends that we play ball with or work with who who have not ever confessed Christ. This is written to insiders. In some way, shape, or form, the people receiving this warning have believed the gospel or been baptized or gotten into the life of the church or professed Christ. These are insiders. Watch out, brothers. And so the next words should totally rock you as you hear them. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
causing you to fall away from the living God, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How can he write this to people who are in the life of a church or have a fish bumper sticker on their car or a cross around their neck or have, would publicly say, I'm, I'm a Christian? How, how do they end up with an evil, unbelieving heart, a heart that has been holy and believing it can get there? All right, let's talk about this. When we believe the gospel, however that looks like for you or you may be in process of getting there, you are not believing the gospel and then whisked off immediately into the, the glory of heaven. You believe the gospel and you are praised placed on a long, narrow, dangerous, brutal road and told, walk it. You are given a new heart and a new nature, but your old nature is still hanging around in there, and there is a constant back and forth battle the rest of your life until you die, whether you will keep your grip on Christ or you will let him go. When I was in college, our dorm room was on the 12th floor of this, of this uh, building. And I mean, whatever the first elevator that they ever put in a building was, the very first one that they were experimenting with, this was the building. This thing worked one out of every 15 days. Then when it did work, you would get two-thirds of the way up and it would stop. I got stuck on there once with the basketball team. I never felt so claustrophobic or small. I usually feel tall. I was just horrible. So half the time, I'd get there, push the button. It's not working. And I would have to hoof it up 12 flights of stairs just to get to my room. Welcome to the gospel life. Jesus does not save you and then put you on an elevator and you get to listen to some happy music, some soft jazz, the guy on the saxophone, and you get a free ride up. You labor to follow Christ all the way up. I don't know if you've ever heard of or read Pilgrim's Progress, but it's a book about someone coming to faith in Christ and finally getting to the heavenly city. And it's laid out so helpfully because in the beginning, he is troubled and he has this huge burden on his back, his burden of sin. And it's not until the fourth chapter when he comes to the cross of Christ that Jesus frees him of that burden. And the first time I read through it, I was like, oh, the burden's gone. Smooth sailing the rest of this story. But that's not what you get. It's not until chapter 12 that he makes it to the river and to the city of God. There are eight chapters in there of brutal, vicious struggle to stay faithful to Christ. That's why these words could be written to us. You can believe the gospel, but you can't just pretend it's smooth sailing from there. You've got to fight for it. Here's how uh, he says it. He says, or you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I want you to feel that this doesn't happen in a second. This is something that takes time. There's a time frame here. Believing the gospel, and if you're not careful over time, that soft heart can grow hard. Any parents in the room who became familiar with Play-Doh as a grown-up and not just a child? All right, so when you have babies, all of a sudden, all the stuff that you were done with, it comes back into your life. Play-Doh was one of those things. 
Now, you should see what they have done with Play-Doh. I don't know what your memories are, but I remember two or three colors, here's a little can, and have fun. Now they have all the colors of the whole Crayola box. They got all this stuff you can grind it through and squeeze it with and shape it in. You could spend $400 on Play-Doh accessories. It's wild. Everybody knows how Play-Doh works with a little kid. You buy it the first day, and they are out of their minds about the Play-Doh. They take it out, and it is soft and gooey and pliable and beautiful. And they make all this stuff, and they say, Daddy, look, what is it? And you're going, oh, shoot, I have no idea what that is. Is that a giraffe or a dinosaur or is it a pole? I don't know. They work on it. They love it the first day. What do they do the first day? Oh, they put it back in that thing, and they put the seal on the top of it, and it goes on their shelf. A couple days goes by. Little kids all have ADHD. It's so funny that they diagnose some kids with ADHD. I'm like, what kid does not just bounce all over the place? Then they take it out, then they play with it, then what do they do? They leave it out. You ever found Play-Doh that's been left out for 48 hours, 72 hours? What has happened to this soft, wonderful, fun, pliable stuff? It's disgusting, right? Oh, it's just hard and rocky and useless. What has happened? Through neglect, through a lack of care, this thing that was supposed to be long-term useful and soft has grown super hard. That absolutely is a danger for my heart and for your heart. Here's how we say this. We say it like this. Some people start, but do not finish. Some people start, but do not finish. The text gives us the paradigmatic example for this, and it is heartbreaking. Multiple times in your Bible, you will see that the paradigm for starting but not finishing is the first generation of believers who were freed from slavery in Egypt. When Allison read it, it said, those who, uh, whose hearts were hardened in the rebellion. So there's quotes around that in your Bible because of this story. I'll give it to you in 60 seconds so that you feel it, because you have to feel it. God's people were in slavery in Egypt, and they weren't just victims, they were, but they also had joined with the worship of idols and floated far away from the God of their fathers. They were lost in their sin in chains. In his grace, the Lord set his affection on these people, and he said, I am going to deliver them free grace, not because they deserved it. Through Moses and Aaron, he walks the people out of slavery through the Red Sea. He meets them in the desert. He covenants with them. He provides manna from heaven to feed them. He is a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day to lead them. He has redeemed them from all of that and proven faithful to them, and they have become his people. He takes them to the edge of the Jordan River, and on the other side is the promised land. And he says to them, I'm going to lead you into this future. Trust me, your joy is not back in Egypt. It's in the land that I've called you to. He even takes some spies and sends them into the land because they didn't have drones to kind of take a look at what it looked like, so they didn't really know what was going on on the other side. He sends spies in for them to, to hunt it out or seek it out. 
They do their thing. They come back with a report. Do you know what they say to the people? They say, you have never seen a land like this. Everything is green. There are cows with udders that you've got to wrap your arms around like this to milk them, right? Cows. There are honeycombs weighing down the branches of the trees. It is a beautiful land, land marked out for him, us. Let's go. Let's go. And do you know what these people who had received the grace of God, who had been set free from slavery and idolatry in Egypt do? You know what they do? They grumble and they say, no, we're not going. We don't trust God to be with us on the other side of the river. They even say it was better for us back in Egypt. Can you feel what happened to their hearts in the road through the wilderness? It's a catastrophe. These people who were near to God suddenly had evil, unbelieving hearts that caused them to fall away. They were no longer cherishing the gospel promises of God but they were happy to turn around and go back to their sin. Now, we could go through the Bible and see that happen over and over again. Judas, Hymenaeus, and Alexander. What I need you to hear this morning is that's not just a Bible story. That happens right here in the life of a church like ours. A few years ago, when I had been doing church planting with you for 10 years, so this surprising left turn into gospel ministry I took some time to just write up about all of the graces and all of the surprises that that the Spirit had met me with in in serving you and in doing this work with you. And I, I had this big list and I wrote about it. And one of those surprises that I wrote about was false conversions. And I want you to hear what I wrote when I was thinking about this because this will make perfect sense with this text. I wrote, I did not expect these and I have no idea what to do with them. So I was processing back then, and I I still am. A little bit less than half of the people that we have baptized into Christ have walked away from Seven Mile Road without so much as a wave goodbye. I'm sure that the parable of the sower applies here, but it has still caught me off guard. I did not expect people to hear the gospel, experience gospel community, turn from their sin, confess Christ, be baptized in front of a room of people, connect deeply with other saints in multiple ways, and then simply leave it all behind. It hurts personally, It makes me question so much about our way of welcoming new believers into our community. It makes me second-guess a lot of things. The majority of these folks who left were not angry or divisive or loudly apostate. They were just folks who could not break free from their old way of living. Just north of Boston culture is so not Christian, not churchy, not gospelly, that it is so easy for people to walk away from Christ 
and seamlessly transition right back into life as it was. I went into this thinking anyone who would actually allow themselves to be baptized and start the road of discipleship and begin drinking the clean waters of the gospel would never go back to the toilet of this world, but it has happened over and over again. Okay, you feel that? That was like my journal entry about that season. Uh, We record this as a podcast, so I'm not going to mention any names to you, but I very easily, in prepping to preach today, wrote down 10, 12 people who have started in the life of this church and not finished, who let go of their grip of Christ. This is real. You're supposed to hear that, and if you're listening well, you're supposed to get quiet. Not because it's awkward, but because it's heartbreaking. It's catastrophic. That's the feel of this text. And you should also be moved now to like literally raising your hand and saying, Cruz, if that's possible, how in the world do I avoid losing my grip on Christ? Because I don't want that to be me. I want in on the gospel promises of God. What you're asking me there are what are God's means of grace What are God's means of perseverance in grace? There's a long list of them, but the next verse may be the most clear, the most unmistakable passage in the Bible for you to hear that one of God's means of grace, that you don't lose your grip on Jesus, is the community of the saints. The Christian fellowship helps us persevere One of the deepest callings on your life is to help me not lose my grip on Christ and me to help you. Here's how the Spirit says it. But, in other words, because of everything we just read, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The remedy is community. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Okay, let's work these words together. Exhort. Again, you should feel that word. That is a strong word. Sometimes when we start talking community life, we throw out platitudes like, hey, we're in this together. We're on the same team. I'm there for you. We talk about analogies like cheerleading or, you know, like when you're running the marathon race and your whole family is way too lazy to train, but they come up with water and a sign to encourage you on the side of the road? Did you not see the greatest Boston Marathon sign in world's history? It said, Falcons 27, Patriots 3, third quarter, 11 minutes and 40 seconds to go. Do you get it? All right, think about it if you don't get it. But if I was running and I saw that sign... It doesn't matter if my lungs were on the road beside me and my knees were jelly. I would catch, you know, the Ethiopian guy at the front of the line. I would be there when I saw that. Okay. That's good. Encouragement, cheerleading is important, but that is not this word. This word is much stronger than that. This is like when Grace is driving up to pick the kids up at school. Our kids' school is about a 12-minute drive up Route 1. And if I have seen that there is an accident I call her and what do I say? Hey, do not go up Route 1 right now. Whatever you do, you'll never get there on time. 
take some back roads. You feel that? Sometimes the milk in our house will be way past the expiration date, but I don't know and I usually don't care. And so Julia will like shake me and like, Dad, you cannot drink that milk. I had melanoma, cancer removed from the top of my head. When my melanoma doctor talks to me on my annual visit, you know what he says to me? He says, tell me that you are not playing ball outside without putting on sunscreen. You feel that urgency? That is an exhortation. Sometimes people are chatting about where they're going to get lunch after the service, and they're like, hey, let's go to Mexico Lindo. And then someone goes, you cannot go to Mexico Lindo. That's the worst Mexican food that's ever been made. Don't do it. Some people disagree, but do you feel the urgency (laughs) of that exhortation? That's this word. The stakes are high. This is not cheerleading. This is serious. Exhort one another. Okay, so feel this with me. Feel the flatness in here. This is the good gospel kind of egalitarianism that comes out in this verse. There are some settings in church life when it is the officers of the church or even the elders of the church who are called to exercise that ministry. Preaching, administering the sacrament, church discipline, yes. But most of the life of the church is to be done face-to-face, side-by-side, each toward each other like in a circle. This is one of those things. When this says, hey, exhort one another... This means whatever your sex, whatever your age, whatever your story, however long you've been following Jesus, the door is open for you to love others in this church with words of gospel exhortation. We're doing that masculinity track. The other day I was out front at the end of the night and Ralph, who is 20 and has been following Jesus for about a year, exhorted me, who is 44 and has been following Jesus for 30 years. You feel that? That's this word. Exhort one another. Flat each for the other. Everyone in this church has permission to do this. More than that, you are required to give yourself to this work. And then it comes with the time thing, which is so hard for you Bostonians. But he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. You see this kind of phrase in your Bible a lot. It's still today. Don't miss the grace of God. That has two different imports to it. One is, you might not get tomorrow, so you better respond today. Um, I don't buy new clothes that often. Is that like a shocking epiphany for people in the room? I just hate spending money on clothes in general, and then we got four children, so on myself, I almost never do it. But Lids was having a sale on like NBA jerseys and stuff like that, and they had this shooter shirt from the last All-Star game, and it's supposed to be $100, and it was on sale for 12 So you know what I did? I dragged it into the shopping cart. You know you can do that? And then I just couldn't pull the trigger and actually buy the shirt because I'm like, I got a lot of shirts. I don't need another shirt. And then I I thought about it like a couple of days later and it was still in the shopping cart. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll do it. And then a few days later when I was actually ready to buy a new shirt, it was gone. 
It was out of my shopping cart. This item is no longer available. I'm going, oh, shoot his shirts. Where are they? They're all $100 again. I missed my shot. The day to do it was the day that I had it opened up. That's one way that the Bible presses this for you. You may not get tomorrow. Today is your day to say yes to the grace of God. But the other way that this talks about this is, as long as Jesus gives you more days, every day that you wake up, that day is a day that you need to be all in on the gospel. Every day is an invitation for you to either let the Plato thing happen or keep your heart soft and tender and responsive to Christ. It's one or the other. In other words, here, here, here's the question that this is, this is pressing for you, so hear it with me. It's not just, how am I believing the gospel today? That is crucial for us to think of every day. That's, that's why we're alive. God's purpose is in the world. But also to say, who is helping me believe the gospel today? This text drives those two questions on you. Every day, as long as this is happening, we should have a bead on How am I believing the gospel today? What circumstance and situation do I need to say yes to God's purposes for me? And I can't do this alone. Who is helping me to believe the gospel? And the corollary, who am I helping to believe the gospel? Do you have an immediate answer to this last question? I was to give you a pen and a sheet of paper and say, second question on the screen, who is helping you to believe the gospel? Who is living in enough proximity to your life that they have access to know you and to love you that you won't lose your grip on Christ? We need you to answer that question with real names in the life of the church. If you gave me a pen, the first name I would write down would be Grace and my family. They are in with me on my holiness. But then I could write down the names of men and women, primarily in the gospel community that we are a part of, who are driving me to keep my grip on Jesus. Real people dealing with a real sinner so that I might hold fast to Christ. Or are you more like the kind of person who says, Hey, I got Sunday and I'm all set. That guy Cruz is not like a half bad preacher, maybe like 40%. And if I ever need anything, I will go knock on his door. But every day, ongoing basis, I'm good. This verse compels us to think differently and to say, I need others in the daily grind of my life. All right, let me land the plane with this. This is not just theory for me. This is as real life as it gets. I am in a gospel community because I am dead without you. And those folks are dead without me. If, if you would have followed my life around from 1996 or so to 1999, it was terrible. And this verse would have had flesh. And you would have said, this is weird. This guy, once upon a time, believed the gospel But there is some unbelief and hardening going on in that heart. In no three-year stretch of my life ever has my heart been as hard as it was to gospel promises, to faith, to holiness, as it was in that stretch of time. 
And one of the things that you would have noticed if you would have had a camera on me in those years was, this guy does not have a single Christian friend. He is not embedded in the life of a church. I mean, he shows up now and then. But there's nobody invested in him. I was not even just in, not in gospel community. I was not in arm's distance of anybody who was speaking into and aware of my life. In other words, take the glory of this text, reverse it, and you had what it looked like to be me. And that fading back toward sin was real. Do you know what pulled me out of that death spiral or that hardening of heart? Yes, it was the Spirit. Yes, it was the preached Word. Yes, it was the Gospel. But it was also community. Finally, I was devoted enough to a church that there was people who knew me and cared enough to ask me hard questions and to love me and to encourage me and to exhort me. I need you. That's why I started with this big phrase, I am dead without you and you are dead without me. I know it. I will never stay the course to the end without you. And I'm looking at you and I could start rattling off almost every name in here and say, you have been so meaningful in me staying on the road. I will never, ever stay married, no less be a decent husband, without you. Without you. Without you. I will never be a halfway decent dad without you involved in my weakness and my failings and my struggles as a dad and saying, how is your heart with your kids? I will never give away money the way that I need to. I will never not love the world and the things of the world the way that I need to. I will never love my neighbor the way that I need to without you. I need you invested in me, encouraging me, caring for me. I am dead without you, and you are dead without me. That's not just my words. That's the clear teaching of Scripture here. We can get into what does that look like? How does gospel fluency work in a relationship? All I'm asking you today is, have you come to believe this? Do you get this in your bones, that I am dead without others invested in me? All right, let's ask God for grace that we might believe that together. Spirit, we thank you again for your words. Look at this, so helpful that we might take care that we not have an evil, unbelieving heart grow up in us that would cause us to lose our grip on Christ, to fall away from the God who has been so kind to us. That instead we need to exhort one another every day, as difficult and messy as that is, to be in relationships where the the gospel can take root. Father, there are folks in this room who are all over the journey with or toward Christ. And so I pray that these simple words would be one more step of help, of comfort, of correction. There is no joy like the joy that is found in the gospel promises. May we be a people who say yes to them together, together today. Hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray. Amen.